0: Ashray Journal presents. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is the Ashray Journal podcast, episode twenty-two. I'm Thomas Oxley, Ashray's Assistant Manager of Standards and Codes,
1: and I'm Emily Toto, Ashray's Manager of Codes. We're excited to kick off Season 4 of the podcast with an episode covering data centers, energy efficiency, and Standard 90.4.
0: Joining us today are Marcus Hassan, Bob McFarlane, and Terry Rogers. Marcus Hassan is Chair of Standards Project Committee 90.4 and a VP at Truist from Charlotte, North Carolina. Greetings.
2: Thrilled to be here.
0: Bob McFarlane is a TC 9.9 board member and SSPC 90.4 founding member, principal of Shen, Milsom, and Wilkie.
3: Bob also serves as adjunct professor for Marist College. So glad to be telling people about this relatively new but very important ASHRAE standard.
0: Terry Rogers is an ASHRAE Distinguished Lecturer, a member of ASHRAE TC 9.9, and a founding member of SSPC 90.4. He is the Vice President of Commissioning and Building Analytics at Jones Lang LaSalle.
4: And hello all, and thanks for the opportunity to discuss data centers in 90.4 today. Gentlemen, welcome to the
0: podcast. Let's get started with a quick summary to get listeners acquainted with data centers, if they aren't already. A data center is a hub for storing, processing, and sending out information. They can contain networks of computers, as well as computing infrastructure. They are essential to every sector of our economy, but especially important for mission-critical facilities.
1: That's right, Thomas. When we say mission critical facilities, we're thinking about everything we rely on and do not want going out of service. That's 911 call centers, fire and police dispatch, hospitals, networks that support national security, and a lot of the banking we do, and the internet in general. And by the way, ASHRAE Technical Committee TC 9.9 covers all mission critical facilities. And therefore, TC 9.9 oversees Standard 90.4. That's what we're talking about today. And Standard 90.4 specifically focuses on data centers. So we're going to define that for our listeners real quick. A data center is a room or building that provides at least 10 kilowatts of energy to IT equipment.
0: But Emily, there's so much more to know about data centers. Bob, I think most people know what their Wi-Fi router is and they know what a server is. But what makes data centers different?
3: Oh, there's so many things, Thomas. But data centers, also called datacom rooms, really are very special places. They require design considerations that most engineers, unfortunately, are not really familiar with. And that's partly because they change so rapidly. All of the heat comes from the equipment. It's entirely sensible heat. There's no latent component. That's kind of an anomaly to most mechanical engineers. The cooling units used are known as precision air conditioners. They have very high sensible heat ratios. The environment's very different than comfort cooling. The occupants are the ITE, the information technology equipment. So we are looking for inlet temperatures to that computing equipment, that ITE, of around 27 degrees Celsius, which translates to 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. That makes the exhaust air from those uh, pieces of equipment, which means the return air to the air conditioners, at temperatures up to 110 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 43 degrees Celsius, or even higher than that. And now we have a very wide humidity range, 8% relative humidity up to 70% relative humidity, depending on conditions. We'll talk more about why that incredibly wide range later. But the real difference is the high power consumption the power consumption in a data center is 10 to 100 times the power density of a standard office building. Single cabinets can range from 15 kW to 60 kW or even higher, where not all that many years ago, a 5 kW cabinet was almost unusual. Today, 25 kW may well be the new norm. Enterprise data centers, therefore, may run from 100 kW to 10 megawatts. Now, looking at efficiency, Just a 1% efficiency improvement in a 10-megawatt facility equals 240 kilowatts of power per day or, at normal billing rates, $7 million or more annually. If we go to the hyperscale data centers, the ones that are handling much of our cloud computing and Google and uh, those kinds of facilities, those can reach a gigawatt of capacity. A 1% improvement in efficiency for one of these hyperscalers could be $700 million annually. Now, most data centers, as Emily mentioned, are classified as mission-critical, and mission-critical automatically means redundant equipment. But redundant design and mission-critical design are not the same. How the redundant equipment is configured determines whether or not it will actually prevent failures. Too often, a lot of money is spent on redundancy, simply putting in duplicate equipment, but the actual design defeats its purpose. However, redundancy can create issues with energy efficiency. Therefore, a special standard is required for data center energy efficiency. Now, minimizing energy use has been a computing industry goal for many years. In 2007, an EPA report said that data centers use one5 to 2% of all U.S. energy and were predicted to double that usage in only five years, which was unsustainable. It was said that that would require 10 new power plants, which couldn't possibly be built in that time frame. So that's what makes data centers just totally out of the normal realm of mechanical and electrical engineering design.
1: Bob, thank you for that thrilling explanation all about data centers that just brings it into terms that I personally really never considered. And it gets me thinking what else can I learn about data centers or try and relate back to my everyday life? Because I hear megawatts, kilowatts, and it sounds like a lot, but I'm trying to picture what kind of comparison could I make between data center energy use and a household item that I'm more familiar with and that's something that I use every day.
4: A typical oven that you would have in your household kitchen is probably between three and five kilowatts worth of heat when it's running wide open when it's full on so as bob was mentioning we have a, a rack of servers a single rack that could have 25 to 30 kw worth of load in it so that right there is about six ovens in a single rack of equipment a typical row because we, we said all these racks in a row could be as much as 10 racks in a row so right there you're talking. 60 ovens in a single row, and that would come out to maybe 300 kW of load. So if you have 10 rows, you're now at three megawatts worth of energy in, in a small data center. So the amount of energy that we use is, is extraordinary. As Bob mentioned, all of that energy is converted to heat. And so we have to reject that same amount of heat out of the building. So one challenge is to keep the power up and running seven by 24 forever. Uh, But it's another that you have to continually get that heat out as well. And if either fails, so it's not just the power, but if the cooling side fails, you're gonna lose your data center in a hurry. So both the electrical and the cooling are considered close coupled to the load. And the transients from a loss of utility, whether it's power or cooling, Uh, those transients are incredibly quick and often result in failures.
1: Based on what you said, Terry, it just seems like we have to be so careful in our energy considerations when we're looking at data center design. I know this EPA report from 2007 provided some real evidence about how much energy these data centers were really using across our country. Marcus, when that report came out in 2007, how did that impact the data center industry? And where do you think we're going as we've entered now 2023, so many years after this first report was produced? Uh, yes, Emily,
2: that's an important point, and I appreciate the question. A brief history lesson, I believe, is vital in understanding the how and why of where we are at. For many years, the industry was concerned chiefly with uptime. The emphasis was building in resiliency, right? Making the requisite investments into the supporting infrastructure. Lowering operational costs was secondary. This actually began changing in the mid-aughts, initially with tackling uh, what we call the low-hanging fruit in the critical environment. uh, Elements such as separation of supply and return air, ceiling openings. Uh, modest increases in supply air temperature the inlet to the servers. Uh, then the 2007 report dropped uh, with its declarations of uh, that phenomenal number of global electricity consumption being via data centers. That report was a catalyst, in, in my view, in that it prompted the industry and data center operators to be more diligent in pursuing energy efficiency and, perhaps most importantly, recognized that availability and energy efficiency were not mutually exclusive concepts. The other byproduct of that report was that it served to place a bullseye on the industry for governmental entities such as the Department of Energy, assorted building code bodies, uh, data center industry thought leadership groups, you know, which were prompted to renew their research in this area, and non-governmental organizations focused on sustainability. Uh some of your listening audience, no doubt, may have been in attendance at the notorious Uptime Institute symposium in twenty ten where Greenpeace was invited to present uh, let's say that did not exactly go well in aggregate though these were vastly positive developments, and with this confluence of events, it then became only a matter of time before Ashray would be compelled to get involved uh regarding Uh, A 15-year fast forward, as you said, 2007 to 2023, the growth in data centers has continued unabated, whether one views it through the lens of absolute growth or as some fraction of global energy consumption. And the order of magnitude leaps we've seen in scale, uh, Bob touched on on some of this. It was not that long ago that a 50-megawatt build occurring over multiple phases of a master plan represented a large data center project. With the advent of the hyperscalers, a large build nowadays is built in the neighborhood of a gigawatt or more. In in terms of energy efficiency, though, this evolution has generally been a boon. That type of scale has the potential to dramatically reduce the unit of energy required to perform a unit of computer storage, which at the end of the day is, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here.
3: Yeah, the good news, Marcus, is that Thankfully, uh, the dire predictions have not come true in spite of the fact that computer usage and our demand for data has, as you say, gone unabated because with the industry stepping up and making so many changes in ITE equipment design, as well as in the design of the power and cooling systems for the data centers, we didn't have to build those 10 new power plants. We've managed to stay under the EPA's predictions. Now, how much longer that'll last is a really good question, but um, the industry really has done an incredible job.
4: If I could add to that, ASHRAE has actually led a lot of the initiatives and the efforts that have resulted in us not continuing to follow that trajectory. Uh, it was ASHRAE's TC 9.9, as mentioned, that developed the original thermal guidelines. It's now on its fifth edition. And with each addition, we have expanded the ranges and made free cooling opportunities more available. The IT industry started smart sizing their power supplies and other things to make their equipment more efficient. And the raised inlet temperatures has allowed for higher delta T's, which has increased the heat transfer efficiency, etc. So it's the industry as a whole has met the challenge of improving efficiency, but it's not been done by any any one group. It's been a, a consortium of ASHRAE, uh, IEEE, um, the Green Grid, TIA, as well as... Um, the manufacturers of the gear that we use to cool the data centers, as well as the owners and the engineers who are designing uh, more efficient sites. So there's been a lot of effort going into improving the overall efficiency of the industry.
2: Yeah, if I could weigh in on that, I want to strongly echo that. A lot of this discussion thread and some of what we're going to cover, you know, to me is a case study for how Ashray and like-minded thought leadership organizations have successfully stepped up when faced with a development like this. I mean, you know, we're talking an emergence of a whole new building category. If we were to say that 90.1 is akin to the energy efficiency constitution, and it held court for, what, a good 30 years, but uh, eventually, uh, you know, all founding documents uh, need amendments, right? I spoke of the low-hanging fruit in the earlier segment, and, and as Terry you know, filled us in, it was Ashray with the formation of uh, Technical Committee 9.9. That happened in 2002. And then uh, TC 9.9 issued the industry's first thermal guidelines in 2004. Gradually, others followed suit, you know, the aforementioned Green Grid Uptime Institute, you know, that the renowned owner-operator network for data centers, which was founded uh, on the altar of reliability and availability, quickly became engaged in energy efficiency. Uh, United States Green Building Council began formulating, believe it or not, a lead for data centers. Uh, The equipment vendor and consultant community, eager to cater to a rapidly growing and relevant industry, began researching the issue. And we soon started seeing a torrent of white papers and products oriented to this aim. And I hope none of us lose sight of that.
3: And this illustrates, Marcus, how quickly the industry has evolved. If you look at some of the history. The concept of hot aisle, cold aisle, instead of cabinets just being arranged in rows facing the same direction, came from IBM in 1992. Then there was the development of aisle containment, the introduction of the ASHRAE thermal guidelines that Terry mentioned. But the expansion of the humidity range came in 2005, and that was the result of ASHRAE research on static phenomena. We had been concerned for so many years about static discharge affecting and and literally destroying information technology computing equipment. That research showed that we could go all the way down to 8% relative humidity in properly grounded rooms without any real concern about static discharge affecting the equipment. The difference that makes in, in energy use is enormous when you don't have to keep humidifying the room. Then we had gaseous contamination issues come up. We capped the maximum of 60% relative humidity, later changed that to 50% or 70%, depending upon contamination levels. We encouraged monitoring in dew point or absolute humidity. Now we're adding liquid cooling to the thermal guidelines. Introduction of the PUE metric, the power utilization of effectiveness metric by the Green Grid in 2006, that became a global ISO IEC standard in 2016. There are so many different things that have happened, and they've happened so fast. It really is a little bit difficult to keep up with it all.
5: Do you work in the data center industry? Are you a 90.4 user or designer? We welcome you to join us at our next committee meeting on March 31st and the annual meeting in Tampa, Florida in June. Please apply to join SSPC 90.4 by going to the ASHRAE website at ashrae.org forward slash membership forward slash join. We have new opportunities for volunteers to contribute to the standard by joining our mechanical, electrical, or environmental and sustainability working groups. Stay up to date with SSPC 90.4 by visiting the 90.4 webpage and signing up for our listserv
1: what's amazing about this group is you don't even need to be interviewed. What are we doing? You've answered the questions that we didn't even know we had, and we've learned so much already. Thomas, um I have a couple more questions i don't know if you want to go back to anything that you had planned on asking, but I think this group of incredibly brilliant data center scholars already answered most of my data center questions. How about yourself
0: I, I think I'm good. I would like to. Dig in a little deeper, I think, on uh, some of the environmental ranges on the data centers. Uh, why is humidity an important factor and why is temperature such an important factor?
4: I can maybe help with that. In the original days of of data centers, I'm, I'm going back to the, the 90s again, we had a lot of tape storage and a lot of devices that read metallic tape. And, and these things were very susceptible to electric static discharge. And also, uh, if it got too moist, then then they would wear out the heads rapidly. And they went for like a hundred thousand dollars a piece. So th- these were major considerations. Uh, so it wasn't just a matter of losing data, but you could lose equipment because of that. Um, over time, though, we got away from the tapes, though some still exist today, and, and they would have some special requirements. You don't want to go to 8% relative humidity if you're still running tape drives, for example. But most of the IT equipment, including the storage, has gone to hard drives and then into actually flash drives, so they don't even have rotating parts. and They're just like computer chips, so they don't require those types of humidity conditions. But traditionally, the data centers and, and some legacy data centers to this day still think that you have to manage the humidity between 40 and 55 percent, something like that. And Ashray found that that was an opportunity to expand that range so that people aren't unnecessarily dehumidifying or humidifying environments, which is is a waste of energy. In addition to that, the ASHRAE TC 9.9, which has a IT subcommittee made up of the IT manufacturers, and they got together and started taking their equipment into labs and testing it to see just how robust their equipment was to withstand the humidity ranges that we were predicting. And that's ended up with the ASHRAE research that Marcus was mentioning, I believe, uh, where we actually... ASHRAE TC nine point nine through an RTAR and, and research approval uh, got the University of Missouri, if I'm not mistaken, to do a study on how IT equipment would be affected by low humidity. And that's where we realized that with the proper grounding uh, and without the tape drives, then you could go down as low as 8% relative humidity. Uh, so our, our guidelines are a little higher than that. We put some margin of safety in it, but uh the, the allowable ranges are quite great. And, and so basically by putting science to it, we, we came up with some bigger and better bands or ranges of, of values that you can operate in, which resulted in a lot of energy efficiencies.
3: Yeah, a lot of this was not really based on science uh, many years ago. It was based on, well, it wasn't quite old wives' tales, but it wasn't too far from it. But the other thing that uh, you didn't mention, Terry, was printing. Uh, In the old days of mainframes, there were these big impact line printers. And not only did paper require definite humidity control, but the amount of dust contaminants that came out of those printers was incredible.
1: Do I still need to ground myself at the gas station? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I really needed to know.
3: It's really good practice for technicians who open equipment in, uh, in their cases To use a grounding strap, Um, it's just still good practice.
1: That's a good note on safety. We've heard a lot about how data centers have have changed pretty drastically over time, and I'm wondering if that changes the way that data centers have looked. Personally, I think about the hallway, the very cold closet in the office hallway. I know you've likened that to a, a meat locker in the past, and we've heard that that's changed. Has the actual look and feel and just architecture of the data center changed over time as well? Uh, Absolutely.
4: Irrespective of the IT equipment itself, the data centers have changed quite a bit. Initially, they just put data centers in rooms and then eventually they said, well, this is all changing really quickly. We need to have a better way of managing it. So, they came out with raised floors and then they could put the power under the floor and they could move floor tiles around so they could put the air where they needed it, and so it became a very flexible and adaptable environment. That then, as we talked about, uh, we just had all the racks in there facing the same direction, and IBM came up with the hot aisle-cold aisle concept, so we started to reverse the direction of every other row so that you could put cold air in the middle and it would be pulled into the inlet on the two adjacent rows, which would then exhaust into hot aisles with the rows facing the exhaust into the same place, and that helped get us the, some, some significant hot air, cold air separation, which gave us higher delta T's, which improved the efficiencies and the capacities of the equipment that we're using. Ironically, nowadays, uh, we've gotten away from the raised floors, and I would say probably more than half the data centers built today are built right on slab, and they have ducted cold air into the cold aisles, and now we use containment, so that air can't get out of the cold aisle other than to go through the IT equipment and then exhaust it into the hot aisle. So, we have real true hot air cold air separation. The physical barriers between the two. So, that eliminated recirc at the rack level where hot air was getting pulled back into the cold aisle. And it's eliminated recirc at the air conditioners where cold air just goes right back to the the air conditioner. So, it's it's made the whole cooling lineup extremely uh, more efficient. So, then We've actually gotten to where we're pushing the envelope on being able to cool this equipment with air, even the cold air. Quite honestly, kind of surprisingly, I've seen a proposal where they go with a new rated piece of IT equipment. that needs colder inlet air now. It's like a step backwards, which is actually going to push our movement further into the liquid cooled electronics. And, and that's where we actually take liquid, whether it's a refrigerant, a dielectric or or water, some kind of liquid directly to the chips. Now, of course, we're not putting water on the chips, so they have heat sinks within the the chassis and we put the water to the heat sink. But basically you eliminate all the fans, and all the air-cooled equipment, and you remove all of the heat out with liquid cooling, and that's being driven by the increasing density and performance, and and the need to cram more power into smaller spaces. When we
2: talk about change, uh, you know, I, I think we're all very aware that uh, that's the constant. But what we see is, you know, those transformations only become more rapid, and uh, you know, as as a ASHRAE standard, as, as committee members, you know, that's what our job is, is to stay in front of that. The average data center or even a definition of a prototype data center, uh, you know, just kind of uh, having Terry walk us through some of the variety in, in, in cooling system technologies, it's challenging to, you know, to quantify what a prototype data center we, we would be. Um, I would characterize it as a continuum, though. You know, we're, we're all probably familiar with one end of that continuum the proverbial closet that doubles as a space for network and servers in the typical office building. Uh, I suspect, Emily Thomas, you have one of these at 180 Technology Parkway. So we're on the same page here, but but that continuum, it, it's it's ranging and is varied as, uh, you know, the large multi-campus data center builds that, uh, you know, Bob touched on when he talked about the hyperscalers to what, Some are describing, associating with the edge data center. I'm surprised we're halfway into our discussion today and the edge data center hasn't been mentioned, but, and that could be a single rack located at the bottom of a cell phone tower. I I think what's uh, important here though, is I would say, you know, all things considered 90.4 and 90.1 got it about right uh, in, in attempting to assign some method to the madness uh, the 10 kW threshold, 20 watts per square foot is a density, you know, being the threshold between a computer room versus a data center. I think that's the appropriate way to break it down. All that said, it's more useful to look at it by business model type because, you know, we have seen some more clear direction there over the last 15 years where the industry is aligned across three fundamental models. I think we're all familiar with this enterprise colo, and cloud. Uh, And and while there can be dramatic differences in data center vitals across these categories, you know, rack densities, favored cooling technology, system capacities, uh, 90.4, in my view, uh, ably addresses each of these models. And it's staying abreast of the industry in terms of uh, the business model evolutions uh, is likely where 90.4 can best provide the most value and maintain its relevancy in the eyes of its constituents.
4: Like Marcus said, I think we picked a very reasonable line because we're not trying to to manage every single rack in every little closet in every little building. 90.1 does that and does it very well. Uh, ninety point four is really geared towards when you get at least enough IT load and enough density that you have to start having different models, energy models. you need different HVAC equipment that, that's all sensible cooling and has the delta T's that that you're looking for, et cetera. So the end result is that ninety point one has actually incorporated 90 point four as an alternative compliance path and therefore uh, married the two as, you know, related documents that interface with each other, but still address the unique perspective of data centers and their need for, for different regulation.
5: Introducing the new Carrier Aquasnap 30RC air-cooled scroll chiller, featuring Greenspeed Intelligence. Designed for best in-class energy efficiency and quieter operation within a tiered approach, the all-new 30RC offers a broader operating range and design flexibility. After all, confidence in superior performance across all types of environments is a big deal, even in small spaces.
3: Terry, you mentioned earlier the fact that we are now basing things more on science. And we keep talking about these higher inlet temperatures of 27C or 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit to the servers. That was not just coming out of the air or that was not just because manufacturers said their servers could tolerate it. Their servers can actually tolerate more. The reason is that that number was picked is because that's the point at which most server fans start ramping up considerably. And of course, we understand the affinity laws where if you double the speed of the fan, we're going to square the, the amount of energy used. So we're, again, looking at trying to minimize energy usage, but still minimize the energy needed for cooling.
1: Thomas, what do you say we get into the details of
5: 90.4?
0: Yeah, let's switch gears. I'm going to pose this question for the group since we have both HVAC and electrical professions uh, represented here today. Standard 90.4 is a performance standard and not a prescriptive set of requirements. Can you all tell us what that means in terms of the designer and what they look for when faced with building a data center?
3: Well, there are just so many options available that prescriptive standards limit both innovation and the designer's ability to use the latest and most appropriate solutions for each situation. I mean, let's look at the cooling options that we have available for data centers today. Terry mentioned underfloor and then going to overhead. We also have in-row coolers, cooling units that intermingle with the cabinets in the row, Uh, self-cooled cabinets, liquid cooling options, direct-to-chip, rear or heat exchangers. Heat rejection can be a central chiller, compressorized air conditioners, either condenser water or refrigerant, dry coolers, air cooling towers, adiabatic or evaporated cooling are available. Any combinations of these can be used in designing a data center. So if you try to prescribe to a designer how to design the thing and what should be used, you've you've grossly limited their options to do it the best for the client, the best for the operation, and the best for energy efficiency. Power also has multiple delivery options like modular UPSs, in-row power distribution, overhead power busway, and a plethora of in-cabinet intelligent power distribution units that we call IPDUs. So with all these choices, plus the heat density and the reliability demands, prescriptive standards just don't make sense. Only a performance-based standard is really usable.
2: To add on to Bob's point, Uh, I'm going to attempt a sports analogy, uh, although as tortured as it may end up sounding, uh, baseball is a team sport, no? And to win the game, you need contributions from each position for sure, but baseball is unique as a team sport in that it also features a game within the game, you know, each play beginning with the result of, you know, the ultimate showdown between pitcher and batter. And I'm using the analogy because it, it's a similar dynamic. If you think about it, with data center design, in a data center, the systems are dominated by two systems: cooling system technology and the efficiency of the electrical distribution system. And that's why fixing the standard around a mechanical load component and electrical loss component is a logical construct. You know, going back to that pitcher batter dynamic. Yes, there's a lot of things involved in the MLC. You know, it's all the mechanical loads, pumps, fans, motors, refrigeration equipment. But for the MLC, it is the selection of the cooling technology that influences so much of the rest of the mechanical design. And that same dynamic plays out with the ELC. This time, it's the electrical engineer's selection of electrical distribution equipment, uh, such as the UPS, which overwhelmingly drive. Uh, how the ELC is going to play out. So I think what Bob walked us through why performance standard was was the only route to go. That's only reinforced by the need to have flexibility in the designer's toolkit because the industry changes so rapidly and we heard a lot of that story uh you know what we've discussed so far. So Terry, do data centers frequently
0: employ economizers in their HVAC equipment? And if so, is there a particular type that's the most common?
4: Uh, absolutely, data centers are definitely seeking any opportunity to do free cooling, and economizers are the primary way to do that. The two flavors would be airside, where we bring 100% outside air into the data centers and and um, reject the air out. The other is through. Um, waterside economizers, similar that you would see in most commercial office buildings, et cetera. The big thing about economizers for data centers is that if they're not designed and controlled properly, they can actually add significant risk to the, not just the operations, but to the IT equipment itself. Uh, You don't want to have condensation occurring in the equipment. Uh, You don't want uh, the equipment to overheat. But also you have challenges with change of conditions, rate of change. So if it it heats up or cools down too quickly, that can thermally stress the IT equipment as well. There was actually some data centers that experienced some significant uh, disasters trying to implement economizers and, and having failure scenarios. And that was one of the big objections to ASHRAE 90.1 when they eliminated the data center exemption uh, at the data center industry was like, whoa, wait a minute, this, this can be very harmful us on a reliability standpoint, which, of course, trumps efficiency in, in most mission critical facilities.
1: Can you talk to us more about the MLC and the ELC and how we go about calculating those values just in kind of a general sense? and how they work together, because you mentioned that you can use a trade-off strategy.
2: Yeah, Emily, thanks for uh, steering us back to uh, covering uh, the core elements of the standard. I'll uh, start with the MLC, as Bob uh, defined the acronym. It's it's the mechanical load component. And, you know, just imagine uh, all of the uh, HVAC equipment, you know, in the facility. You know, we're, we're talking refrigerated equipment, fans, pumps, motors, drives. Uh, humidifiers, cooling tower fans, even uh, down to the detail of uh, rejecting the heat that is thrown off by uh, the UPS modules. So the MLC models all of that, and based on equipment that's available in industry, best design practices, it assigns a maximum value for the MLC and sets a baseline much like ASHRAE 90.1 does for energy efficiency of a building. The one thing where MLC and the ELC vary is because cooling loads, cooling technology does vary by geography. The acceptable MLC values do vary based on climate zone, and that's all very well detailed uh, in 90.4, which particular MLC max applies to which climate zone. Shifting to the ELC, which is the electrical loss component, and you know, at first blush, well, wait a minute, when we talk mechanical, we're saying load, but electrical loss, why, why are we doing that? That is the fundamental of the electrical distribution system, right? What you're trying to do is manage a series of losses, you know, the losses you see in in a you know AC system, you know the various transformations, the I squared losses uh, you know, from running current through a conductor. That's the task there is managing the electrical distribution system from a loss standpoint. In 90.4, you know, the ELC is modeled on on the most common segments of data center distribution, where the UPS segment is the most significant one as far as, uh, you know, being able to manage the losses by way of the UPS module selections uh, one makes. It also addresses, uh, I think Bob talked a lot earlier about, you know, the inherent redundancy in data center systems where, you know, you have diverse power paths. And uh, certainly that's the case here. But the ELC does not attempt to, you know, run every permutation or scenario. What it does is it selects the worst case and says whatever the highest loss, least efficient path That one takes that is what uh, you know you're going to have to assume as far as determining your uh, ELC.
3: Yeah, and I'd like to mention, Marcus, that when we were creating Standard 90.4, there were objections raised to our using new metrics instead of the PUE, which everybody by then knew about. And uh, there were even some articles written by people who, unfortunately, didn't talk to us in advance, criticizing that decision. But the PUE is a measurement metric. You have to have measurements of actual power draws in the data center to calculate the PUE. In design, there's nothing to measure, as every engineer knows. So trying to predict a PUE would require thousands of calculations, and it would still be wrong. Even worse, owners would probably expect that PUE to be met in actual operation, and we all know it would not. So the 90.4 standard is meant to enable designers to meet efficiency requirements. AHJs have no power to enforce how the facilities ultimately operated so the uh, the new metrics the MLC and the ELC make a lot more sense from a design standpoint
4: some of the air handlers that we're talking about are not they're an entire floor of a building most people would think of an air handler as a piece of equipment that you walk up to and it has a it has a casing and and a bunch of stuff on the inside in some of these data centers these these large ones The data center is on the first floor. On the second floor is the mechanical cooling equipment. Basically, you walk into the first room and on one wall is all outside air louvers, and the floor is the grating where the hot air is coming up from the data center below. And that's your mixing box. You walk around that into the next room and the back wall is basically your filter bank. So you walk around that into the, the room between the two and you're now between the filter rack and a fan wall. And then you go to the next room and you're between the fan wall and the cooling coils. And then you leave that and go into the next room and you got the supply air being ducted back down to the data center or being released out the back of the, the building. So basically, the entire second floor of these buildings is our air handlers. And so it's, it's not something you can just go to a manufacturer and say, well, give me a cut sheet that shows me how efficient this is. So part of the challenge is being able to do calculations on expected efficiency for non-standard equipment, stuff that you can't even put in a lab and test. So there is no standard SEER rating, for instance, on something like that. You have to basically do a built-up unit, calculate each of the, the problems and losses, et cetera, and adjust it. So that's just an example of how data centers are so unique compared to like a typical commercial office building.
1: And would you say the standard is more robust because it requires calculations at different percentages of the data center's overall capacity? I'm not sure if robust
4: is the right word, but it's definitely thorough. And So, we took into account that the load profiles may never even be met. Uh, Many data centers are built with a ultimate rating. And you'll go in them 10, 15 years later, and they never got to that rating. So that they will never get beyond 50 or 75% of their total rated load. Uh, so actually, the the lower profiles, the 25% and 50% are very significant because probably data centers will will run in that range most of their life.
3: And I'll mention also, Terry, that on top of what you said, we do all of our calculations based on the ITE design load. Now, the ITE design load for a UPS, for example, is usually about 80% of the UPS rated capacity. So if we've got 100kW UPS and an 80kW design load, we're not doing all of our calculations on 100kW, we're doing it on 80. And the percentage is therefore take us down to lower and lower regions of the UPS, which means reduced efficiency. So we're really, as you said, trying to take a very practical and realistic approach.
0: I have a question for the three of you all. Because Standard 9.4 allows trade-offs between the MLC and the ELC, would you say it's more flexible this way, or is it more difficult because of all of the calculations that are involved?
4: In my opinion, it's very practical, and it was basically written by people who are in the business of using these types of documents. So, they are very familiar with 90.1 and, and what engineers have to do to get permitted drawing sets to get permission to build buildings. So another reason that we chose to use the the trade-off concept and an overall efficiency requirement is because, as we mentioned earlier, the the trade-off, we have data centers are somewhat unique in that they are typically built uh, for some ultimate load, let's say 10 megawatts or something. But on the day that they go live, when they've been completed, they've been Tested and commissioned, and, and they start operations, they may only have a, a very small percentage of that load available on day one. It could be less than 10% or so. Because we have all this redundant equipment, we can take advantage of the affinity laws, and we can run the mechanical equipment in a very efficient manner at these very small loads. But unfortunately, on the electrical side, they're typically very inefficient at these low loads. And so the trade-off helps you in that regard. And then as the loads increase over time, the electrical systems become more efficient and the mechanicals become less so. So the trade-off kind of works throughout the entire profile, load profile, and it will help get very good designs approved and built, which will probably not see the ultimate load for many years. So that that was another big trade-off. And that's a reason why we require... The compliance calculations to be done at 25%, 50%, 75%, and 100% of the design load.
3: That just emphasizes why 90.4 was developed as a design standard, because the design industry just does not have all this information day one. The equipment that the uh, the user is running when the design starts may be different by the time the data center is is actually built. Some of it may not even have been invented at the time the design starts because the equipment changes so rapidly in the IT industry. Uh, Three years on average, some places even 18 months turnover.
4: So one of the big advantages 90.4 has was being a performance-based standard that allowed ultimate flexibility on the engineer's part to come up with innovative solutions that must meet the minimum energy requirements that we set in data centers in in the 90.4 standard. Uh, What I'd also mention is that the vast majority of data centers being built today will meet 90.4 with no problem. These are owners, as we mentioned before, who are saving millions of dollars of energy for each 1% improvement in efficiency what we're really targeting here are the legacy data centers and the smaller data centers or regardless they are the people who are perhaps not as up on the the available solutions that we have today who continue to try to design data centers like they were meat lockers 20 years ago and are basically energy hogs and highly inefficient so That was really the target that we wanted to make sure that we made them at least a minimum amount of efficiency. But the vast majority of data centers today will have no problem meeting 90.4.
3: I think another important point of those separations and trade offs, Terry, is that upgrades to data centers and renovations are not always done in total. You may upgrade your UPS or part of your electrical system, or you may have to add air conditioning. The standard allows you to do that as long as you take into account the efficiency of the existing equipment as well.
4: Yeah, I think we've, we didn't mention the, the, the scope of 90.4 is not just for new construction and new buildings, but it applies to the renovation and expansion and update of existing facilities as well.
1: Thanks for bringing that to light, Terry. I want to ask Marcus another question about just kind of a look back from 2016 when the standard first published until now. Where do you think 90.4 stands, Um, not only within ASHRAE and our family of standards, but just the industry overall?
2: Yeah, as the new kid on the block, my view is the standard has acquitted itself relatively well. And uh, believe me, I'm very dialed in to uh, 90.4 and its relevancy and standing, right? I think uh, that's something Thomas can attest to with the tantrums I've been known to throw when an industry white paper comes out on the subject and conveniently fails to uh, mention or reference ninety point four. But it's a it's an encouraging story, you know. In the space of that six and a half years, we've seen three editions. You know, the the twenty twenty two edition just dropped uh, what last week. Uh, we've seen a standard and a standing project committee that has been. Responsive to a rapidly changing industry and the accompanying needs of its constituents, just a couple things you know to illustrate that. You know we, we've uh, seen continuing re- refinements in both MLC and ELC, not only in each uh, three-year edition, but via addenda to standards before they're updated for the three-year release. Twice uh, we've tightened the UPS segment of the ELC as UPS systems became not only more efficient, but increasingly more efficient across a wider range of uh, loading levels. And that's particularly important in the data center industry, where due to the redundancy, you usually don't approach the high end of the curve where the systems have traditionally been most efficient. Uh, Incentives for heat recovery and on-site renewable energy, those have been adopted as these sustainability strategies have gained favor in the industry. And, you know, in implementing this, there's been, in my view, phenomenal collaboration with both the end-user communities and vendors and crafting these updates so they meet the needs of the industry. And then uh, I'll throw out a trio of developments of considerable import as far as the standing in the industry and relevance the state of Washington adopting 90.4 for data centers in July of 2020. Uh, International Energy Code adoption in 2021. And uh, this was a big one. 90.1, uh, adding 90.4 as an alternative compliance path for data center projects in their 2019 edition. You know, I, I think that really, uh, we had pushed open the door as a standard, but I think that we fully entered the the, the, the room, if you will you know, without having that available to the design community.
4: If I could add to that, um, most states do not adopt the most current version of code. Many states are on a three-year delay, three-year lag. So the 2019 version is probably being adopted by many states uh, in 2022, 2023. As much influence as 90.4 has had, it's really about to take much more influence as it gets adopted more and more by differing states
2: and emily to close on your you know the original premise of your question i think going forward uh 90.4 committee you know is continuing to be committed to include diverse voices you know throughout the industry for input Uh, i think that's illustrated by our key working groups you know electrical mechanical but we also have marketing and uh, newly formed esg working groups and this is uh very important to stay abreast of, uh, you know, what we've characterized as increasingly rapid transformations in not only the underlying technologies in the industry, but also best practices. And if managed effectively, working groups, that's the gateway to bring in, you know, more industry participants and uh, the essential diverse perspectives that, uh, you know, needed to keep a standard relevant. And and I was particularly encouraged, you know, we, we've seen ASHRAE in just the last 18 to 24 months is taking very bold steps at harmonization efforts across the ASHRAE ecosystem, uh, particularly around building decarbonization. And uh, that task force 90.4 was one of the uh, committees that that task force reached out to uh, help and join that harmonization effort. So uh, again, as the new kid on the block, we're doing quite well and there's a lot of important work ahead of us.
1: I completely agree. There's so much to look forward to with 90.4. Thomas, it's sad to say that we're going to have to wrap this thing up.
0: I know, Emily. We've covered so much in a very short amount of time. Obviously, I think we could go on for another two or three hours discussing all of the things in and around data centers and what the future holds for them. But today we covered you know all the basics of data centers, and then we really dug deep into standard 90.4. And what 90.4 can bring to data centers to help make them energy efficient?
1: We just thank you so much, Terry, Marcus, and Bob, for lending your expertise today. And also just in general, for making a commitment to ASHRAE throughout all these years. And could the three of you send us out with some closing remarks?
4: Sure. First, I want to thank you for this opportunity and putting all this together. I'd like to thank our audience for allowing us this opportunity to talk about data centers and 90.4. And I would encourage everybody to look at the February ASHRAE Journal, where we have an article published on data centers and standard
2: 90.4. Yeah, Thomas, Emily, many thanks for the platform and the invitation. And I would be negligent if I didn't encourage your listening audience to check out the brand new standards 90.4 website and join us for our next committee meeting, uh, which is uh, happening next month.
3: And by all means, we've talked about technical committee 9.9, TC 9.9. And uh, you can contribute to the guidebooks, uh, such as the thermal guidelines we've talked about by simply being involved in that incredible technical committee in ASHRAE.
0: Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
5: The Ashray Journal Podcast team is editor John Falcioni, Managing Editor Kelly Barraza, Producer and Associate Editor Chad Jones, Assistant Editor Caitlin Beige, Associate Editor Tani Pilewski, and technical editor Rebecca Madasovsky. Copyright Ashray. The views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals only, and not of Ashray, its sponsors, or advertisers. Please refer to ashray.org forward slash podcast for the full disclaimer.